Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast that brings you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about Chiu Miaojin, a Taiwanese lesbian writer. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose land we record this podcast. I would also like to acknowledge the Boon people of the Kulin Nation on whose land I researched this podcast. We pay our respects to the elders of both peoples, past and present, and recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. Lastly, before we get into the episode, there are some content warnings. This episode contains death by suicide, some homophobia and transphobia by both individuals and the media, and an instance of queer people being outed without their consent by the media. Take care of yourselves and skip to another episode if you're not prepared to hear about this. I'd also like just to note, in case you can hear it, that there is some heavy rain going on outside. So if you're getting Queer as Fact ASMR Relaxing Rain Sounds Edition, yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) We hope you find it soothing. The other thing I just wanted to note now, so that you're aware, Chinese names generally have the family name first and then the given name second. So Chiu Miaojin's given name is Miaojin. Her family name is Chiu. I generally refer to her as Miaojin in this podcast, but occasionally in quotes, people use the family name. I just want to make a little note about my sources before I start. It's a very short note. It's not a whole section. That's fine. (laughs) I thought Um, we were past uh, making excuses for the source section. People love the source section. I've heard this. I Um, to get absolutely lost in the source. So one thing I wanted to say was there is a double volume of Chiu Miaojin's journals, which was published in Taipei in 2007, I think which covers the last few years of her life, I wasn't able to get that book. It's in Chinese, it's in traditional characters, which I can't read. Um, And also just shipping it from Taiwan would have been very difficult. That's fair. And even if you shipped it from here, then what? Uh, Yeah, like I could ship it here and then I probably could have picked through it for like a few significant things. But I could not really have sat down and read that book. Fair. Even if it came. So I just wanted to note that there is a lot of detail about Chiu Miaojin's life that wasn't available to me. Because of this, some of what I know about her and her life is filtered through the lens of her two novels. I know I often talk about the way that marginalised people's novels are always perceived as somewhat autobiographical, while people belonging to dominant social groups are trusted to imagine things. Also, I think just treated as a neutral canvas on which they can create a novel. Yeah. However, in the case of Chiu Miaojin, I think she genuinely uses her own life to inform the lives of her lesbian protagonists. One of them shares a name with her. Oh, okay. So that one of them goes to her university and is studying her major. Oh, okay. If you see what I mean. They're pretty clearly semi-autobiographical novels. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lai Xiangyin, a close friend of Miaojin's, said about the second novel, when asked if it was autobiographical, said, you might say everything in it is true, yet Chiu's unique presentation has turned it into fiction. Okay. So if that kind of makes sense. I think you can read a lot into them in terms of how she perceived gender, how she perceived her queerness. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to use them to draw on like events in her life. Chiu Miaojin was born on May 29th, 1969. That's just so recent. It is super recent. It is super recent. The only reason that this is history is that she did not live for very long. So she was born in Changhua County, a densely populated county on the western coast of Taiwan. I don't know how much you know about Taiwan or where it is. It is a small island off the eastern coast of China. Um, That's how much I know about Taiwan right there. I mean, geographically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I did some research into having a holiday there. There were some nice hikes. There were some hot springs. It's very queer friendly, isn't it? It's super queer friendly. As far as I know, Miao Jin lived in Changhua County until she was accepted into Taipei First Girls High School which is a very prestigious state high school, which accepts only academically high-achieving girls. She graduated from this high school in 1987 and was accepted into National Taiwan University. This coincided with a fairly significant and pivotal time in Taiwanese politics and society. I'm going to flag here that a lot of this script is actually more generally about politics and society relating to Taiwanese queer culture at this time. I think it's also good that we get to use, you know, queer people from all different places to learn about queer culture in those places. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's quite common we do that, so I am not surprised or disappointed. From 1949 to 1987... 
Taiwan was under martial law, ruled by the Kuomintang, which was the Chinese Nationalist Party. They essentially wound up with Taiwan after the Civil War, when the Communist Party chased them out of China, and Taiwan ended up being the one piece of territory they had left. They're very convinced that they're the real government of China, mm. the entire nation, and that eventually they will go back and reclaim it. During this 40-year period of martial law, the GMD had two goals. One was to repress Taiwanese nationalism and assimilate Taiwan into Chinese nationalism and Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the second one was to repress communism. So prior to the Kuomintang taking over Taiwan, was it a part of China? Okay, so... (laughs) You're you're putting that section that you deleted back in. I am. Please explain 600 years very succinctly. I shall. Go. Okay, so... The original inhabitants of Taiwan are Austro-Polynesian people. They've been there for maybe 8,000 8, years, uh-huh. something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. I like how this episode started in 1969 and is <laughs> you know, 8,000 years earlier. Yeah. I remember another fact I know about Taiwan. Isn't that where bubble tea comes from? Yes. Yes, it yeah. is. Austro-Polynesian people, then bubble tea. Good okay. Job. Please <laughs> Let's fill in the gaps. Please put some Let's stuff in the middle gaps. of that sandwich. <laughs> okay. So until about the 1600s, Taiwan is largely inhabited by its indigenous population. Mm-hmm. There are ethnically Chinese people living in some of the islands, the smaller islands surrounding Taiwan, and a kind of transient population of Chinese people that come to Taiwan like seasonally to do fishing, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. In the 1600s, the Dutch colonized Taiwan. They encouraged migration from, from China in order to have a labor force. Mm-hmm. They didn't stay for very long. They didn't, they didn't last 100 years. Mm-hmm. They left. And when they left, they ceded Taiwan to China. Okay. This also didn't last very long. This lasts like another 200 years. And then China. That is kind of a long time. Mm. It's kind of a long time, but not in the scheme of for 6,000 years before that. That's true. You know. And then in the mid 19th century, China lost its war with Japan and ceded Taiwan to Japan. Okay. So for the preceding 50 years before the Kuomintang took it, Taiwan had belonged to Japan and had essentially been in a kind of similar situation where Japan was trying to assimilate it into Japanese culture mm-hmm. and sort of importing Japanese migrants into there to try and like establish ownership over it mm-hmm. speaking japanese was mandatory publishing in japanese was mandatory that mm-hmm. kind of thing all that sort of stuff all yep. that sort of stuff japan lost world war ii and taiwan was returned to china and then the guomindang lost china and was stuck in taiwan okay thank you for that potted history of taiwan so that's the situation now this is why taiwan is a politically complicated situation today yeah now you know don't read elon musk's tweet it was bad. I was sure it was. Um, anyway, basically, under martial law, under the Guomindang's martial law, publishing in the Taiwanese language was illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Taiwanese language is actually a Chinese dialect, which is not Mandarin. Okay, it was brought to Taiwan with migrants in like the 17th century. So publishing in Taiwanese was illegal. All media and literature had to be in Mandarin. There were some. 30 legally permitted newspapers, 15 of which were owned by the state. I see. Um, That's a lot of papers for the state to own. (laughs) It's not like, here's the state-mandated paper you have to read. It's like, we've got a variety, but they are all (laughs) state-mandated. Yeah, and some of them, like, some of them are the government, some of them are the military. They're, you know, assorted branches of the state, basically, run various newspapers. And there are some other newspapers that are permitted to exist, but it's very restricted what they're Mm -hmm. allowed to publish. Yeah. Other basic civil rights were limited. So the right to assembly and free speech were very restricted. It was a one party state. Mm -hmm. And political and social differences were very much not tolerated as a kind of, they were seen as kind of communist, basically, (laughs) (laughs) you know, (laughs) So, in 1987, due to public pressure both within Taiwan and internationally, the Kuomintang was forced to relax some restrictions. Other political parties were allowed for the first time, and some of the restrictions of, like, martial law to do with free speech were relaxed. And this is about the time that Miao Jin's going to uni? This is just as Miao Jin is starting uni, so this is her first year at uni. Cool. The lifting of martial law allowed the Democratic Progressive Party, which had been formed illegally prior to that, to become a genuine opposition party and kind of push the government generally in a more progressive and more socially tolerant direction. So what this kind of led to is that in the late 80s and the early 1990s, a whole like a whole range of kind of social activist movements and political movements that had been 
simmering under the surface for decades, suddenly appeared in the public eye. Like, feminist movements appeared, like sex worker activism, indigenous liberation, all of these things suddenly become visible. And they become visible in a very kind of mature way because they've Mm. been existing in secret for so long. Mm. Seems very much like Taiwan has kind of gone from zero to 60 in terms of queer. What a heady time to be at university. Yeah, that's why I thought this was kind Mm. of important to know. Like. You just kind of, it's just kind of like you walk out of, I don't know, an authoritarian state into a, like, fully developed modern queer society. That's kind of what leaving high school and going to uni is like. That's very much true (laughs) now that you say it. (laughs) We went to Catholic school. We sure did. I guess the Vatican is an authoritarian state. They do vote for the Pope, but, like... But who votes for the Pope? Let's not get into this. All right. All right. Um... So I'm going to be talking from here about the queer movement, but I wanted to note quickly that all of these political movements are very closely interlinked, like, you know, queer, the queer movement, feminism, the sex worker movement, the like mm-hmm. Taiwanese nationalist movement and opposition to China. They're all very closely interlinked and they involve a lot of the same people. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about this like it's a queer movement, but all of these people are very politically involved more broadly. While I'm here... I also want to discuss the two words that you might see in association with this new queer movement. So basically the queer terminology that you'll see in Chinese. The first is tongzhi. This is originally the word for comrade. I've heard as of in this like, word. Yeah, as in like a communist sense. Yeah. You know, my comrades who yeah. like do the revolution with me. Mm-hmm. Now it's my gay comrades. Yeah, that's literally exactly right. It comes from, it was originally coined in Hong Kong and it came to Taiwan in 1992 with a queer film festival. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's made of two characters. The first character is Tong, which means same. The second character is Zhi, which is like a purpose, a goal, oh, something like that. That's a nice word. It took the place in the queer movement of the earlier word for homosexuality, which is tong xinglian, which has much more of the connotations of homosexuality. It has a very mm. kind of medical detached tone. Okay. Um, but it shares the same first character, that like same. Yeah. So basically it's kind of connecting these two things, homosexuality and a political struggle, like a shared political struggle. So okay. when this word came to Taiwan to mean queer from Hong Kong, mm-hmm. did they already know this word in Taiwan as something that was used for your political comrade? Yes. Okay, Yes, It's a word that already exists. You still will see it today in the mainland, used in, like, official government addresses. We'll refer to each other as comrade. But Um, in Taiwan it's, like, exclusively queer now? Yes. Okay, cool. Even in the mainland it is quite queer and is kind of outdated and funny in its political sense. (laughs) Right. And the Um, government's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, 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 That's exactly. Pretty funny. <laughs> exactly. Um, you often see the word tongzhi in the queer sense used by queer activists, and they'll refer to this quote from Sun Yat-sen. Who, Who's Sun Yat-sen, Irene? Sun Yat-sen is who we call the father of modern China, both China, mainland China, and Taiwan. He was the founder of the Kuomintang, um, which eventually split off into the Communist Party and the Kuomintang that's in Taiwan now. He was instrumental in overthrowing the Qing dynasty, so the final imperial dynasty of China, and establishing the Republic of China. But his principles are like socialism, opposition to colonialism. That's Sun Yat-sen. And on his deathbed, he said, the revolution is not yet over. My comrades must continue the struggle. That's a very convenient slogan to become queer for queer activists. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you'll see it a lot repurposed as a queer slogan. Mm. It's one of my favorite queer words. I have a few friends who are like queer Chinese diaspora people who are like, this is my word. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in love with this word. It's good to feel a strong connection to your queer words. Yeah, yeah. Um, The second word you might see is kuar, which is a transliteration of queer. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, And it functions in a lot of similar contexts. Like, it's very common in academic contexts. Mm -hmm. And it has a kind of broader and more malleable meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, In the same way that the academic word queer does. Too malleable, one could say, (laughs) in my personal (laughs) opinion. Is there any distinction you would like to point out between how it's used in a English academic context? No. Or is it pretty, we can pretty much take it as we understand it already? Yeah, there's not really a huge distinction I'd like to 
I'll have to draw attention to. I think in in my experience, it's used more academically and less in the sort of popular sense that we use queer. Yeah. Because I guess they have another word that would fulfill a fair bit of that function. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say its meaning is very similar to the academic use of queer. Okay. Having said that, it may well have shifted in recent years. I don't claim to be an expert on mm-hmm. Chinese queer terminology. This all comes to be relevant to Tio Miaojin, one, because she's queer, mm-hmm. and two, because Tongzhi literature was a very significant aspect of this flourishing queer movement. Its contributors are mostly like young queer students. I see how this will be relevant. Yeah of Chiu Miaojin's like era of her generation. And they shared a kind of experimental, kind of slightly surreal style of writing, which featured both explicit critique of Taiwanese gender and sexuality norms, along with a lot of more subtextual commentary through like metamorphosis, metaphors, vampires, werewolves, Kafka-esque animal transformations. <laughs> <laughs> You're in for a ride. This sounds fun. That sounds great, but also like it might be quite difficult to analyze. So I'm excited and trepidatious. Okay. (laughs) In spite of the fact that it was often very kind of experimental and literary in a way that we would perceive as inaccessible now, Tongzhi literature seems to have been popular broadly in the queer community. The two main queer magazines of the 1990s in Taiwan, which were called G&L and Together, respectively, ran queer short story sections where they would publish local queer short stories or international ones in translation they would also review longer works so they seem to be broadly accepted in spite of having this kind of experimental academic literature tone to them Mm -hmm. the literature movement also saw sort of mainstream literary success scholarly literature journals ran tongju themed special editions which would be edited by local scholars with an interest in Tongzhi literature. And short stories with queer themes were frequent winners of prestigious literary prizes. And I assume none of this was possible before that political shift that we Absolutely talked about. Not. This really has gone from zero to 60. Yeah. <laughs> cool, good. Yeah, it's literally like in 1987, they're like, I guess you could make a queer magazine. And by 1993, people are like winning awards about it. Good, 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 good. Nice. Um, so... Is it legal to be gay in Taiwan at this time? Yes, and it always has been. Oh, how nice. It's not generally socially acceptable. Mm. Um, And often, like, in the ways that you see broadly around the world, gay beats and that kind of thing are over-policed in the name Mm. of, like, cultural decency or, Mm, you know? But specifically homosexual activity is not illegal. Okay, yeah. So, with all that context, let's go back to Chiu Miaojin. After graduating, Miao Jin went to National Taiwan University, which is again the most prestigious university in Taiwan. She's doing well for herself. She is doing well for herself. This is something that she actually brings up through the mouthpiece of the main character in her first novel, who is at National Taiwan University and went to Taipei First Girls High School, where she's like, from the outside, everyone thinks I'm living this very privileged life, but Mm -hmm. because of my attraction to women, I'm struggling. Oh, yeah. So I think this is something that she did kind of find a tension in her life about, where she was like, it looks like everything should be going right, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel like everything is going right. Can I derail you again? Yeah. So were you able to read these two novels that she wrote in English or in Chinese? In English. In English. They were both translated into English recently. Nice. Cool. How recently? Like 2017, 2018, quite recently. Do you have them? Yes. I have them. You can get them as EPUBs. Are there vampires or werewolves or transformations of animals in them? <laughs> yes. Can yes, you I please can give them to me? <laughs> yes. Would you say that those are autobiographical moments? <laughs> um, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so, at the same time as Miao Jin started university, she started writing short stories, which were published in various local newspapers. In 1989, she won the Zhongyang Times Short Story Prize. The following year, she won the Lianhe Literary Prize for a novella called The Lonely Crowd about a pair of ghostly victims of the Tiananmen Square massacre attending a political protest in Taiwan. That's intense. That is intense. And I also just bring this up because, again, the shift from like absolute political repression to Mm. winning a prize for this story. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel that would be controversial now. now. Absolutely, yeah. In 1991, she had amassed enough published short stories to publish an anthology. In the same year, she published her first overtly queer short story. Oh, so none of these short stories were queer till now. No, they often had political content, but none of them were overtly queer. Mm -hmm. 
The queer story is called Platonic Hair. I'm sorry I can't give you like a better name for this. I looked up its Chinese translation and it's literally like Plato, as in the philosopher, hair, as in what's on your head. And I couldn't, like, there's no <laughs> way that I could translate this better. Yeah. So does that mean platonic as in ideal or platonic as in non-sexual or some other meaning of platonic? It's to do with his wrestling career <laughs> in his context. <laughs> I, I honestly can't answer that question. The hair in question is the main character's hair, which has a kind of like, within the story, has this kind of autonomous queer yearning. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of surreal story. I will talk to you about it a bit. Basically, the subject matter of this story concerns a writer who writes romance and erotica and whose publisher suggests that she would write better stories if she experienced them for real. It's a bit rude. Basically, the publisher pays <laughs> for the main character to hire a sex worker who she contracts to be her fake girlfriend for six months so that she can write better romance. <laughs> this is a fan fiction premise. Um, anyway. And then how does the hair function? The whole story is told from after this six-month period has ended and yeah. the protagonist is kind of trying to come to terms with the masculine gender identity that this experience kind of woke up for them and also their desire for Han who is the sex worker and the hair is kind of they're like following their hair to find her oh okay the hair is kind of like prehensile and leading them to her that is very cool I'm here for it yeah. yeah. Anyway, so the two of them live together for six months. They gradually fall in love. The love remains non-sexual in spite of the protagonist's sexual desires because Han, the protagonist's partner, finds asexual love more meaningful to her. She enjoys sex in the like less intimate context of her professional life, but she doesn't want to have sex with her partner. Mm -hmm. So the story shows us some interesting things about Taiwanese lesbian gender identity and gender expression. I'm going to read you a little section here about hair. It's kind of a reflection and maybe a satire of like gendered lesbian social constructs okay. in Taiwan. So this is Han speaking to the protagonist. Your hair's so long. Your hair's much longer than mine is. I absently stroked her fringe with my left hand. But you're a man. Can't men have long hair? I protested back at her. No, men aren't allowed to. But long hair is so beautiful. Don't you love your long hair? If you had long hair too, you'd stop loving mine. And then I'm going to skip a little bit because there's a long paragraph. And then, then Han says that if the protagonist grows long hair, she might as well cut off her own hair and they can swap roles. <laughs> and the protagonist finishes by saying, you mustn't cut your hair. You're a woman. I've grown used to your long hair. So um, it's very much understood that one of them has to be the short hair one. One of them has to be the long hair one in this conversation. Yes. And there's yeah. a sense of, like, complementary Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, and what this is a reflection of is the two kind of gendered categories in Taiwanese lesbian culture, which are called tea and poor. Tea is short for tomboy. Oh, poor yeah. is a Chinese word meaning wife. So okay. I'm sure you can imagine sure, how yeah. those go. Cool. So a tea would take on a masculine self-presentation. They would have short hair. They would wear masculine clothing. Western-style suits were very popular. Mm -hmm. They would often adopt masculine mannerisms and habits like smoking or drinking and dating women. Yep. So you're phrasing all of this in the past tense. Are these... These identities somewhat still exist, but have become much more fluid than they were in this okay. period. Okay. I'm going to discuss these two identities a little bit here. I just want to note that in this section, I will read you various quotes or discuss the perspectives of various T individuals. In spoken Chinese, the personal pronouns are homophones. Okay. They are distinct in written Chinese, but the pronouns are not gendered when people speak. Okay. Because of this, the interviewer doesn't necessarily have access to what English language pronouns the person they're speaking to would prefer. Makes sense. Because um, that would be weird. So I've just made my best guess, basically, about what pronouns might be suitable to each person. I didn't want to just broadly use they because I thought that wouldn't reflect the variety. Okay. Okay. Um, but I'm just letting you know that that's, that's what's happening here. I don't mean to make claims about what each individual person would prefer here. It's, a most, it's kind of a guess on my part. Okay. Right, okay. So you read this in Chinese and now you're... I read parts of it in Chinese. I read parts of it in English, but they were interviews done in Chinese and translated. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Just out of curiosity, the parts that you read in English, how did other translators deal with this pronoun situation? The translator was the person who did the research. Uh So she was the person who did the interviews. She usually used she. Okay. I don't necessarily trust researchers when they (laughs) always default to the, like, assigned gender at birth pronoun. And definitely there are some people here who make very strong statements about their manhood. Okay. So I didn't want to just stick to that because it seemed misleading. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Mm-hmm. The word tea originates in Taiwanese gay bars in the 1960s. They were broadly considered to be spaces for gay men. However, because it was impossible for a tea to take their girlfriend out in a conventional space unless they could like pass as a man, mm-hmm. gay men's spaces kind of became spaces for transmasculine people and their partners as well. Okay. So what about, is it poor? Poor. Poor? Yeah. It's spelled P-O in pinyin, but that's the sound. It's like poor. Poor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've said here that like T's and their partners could go to these gay men mm. bars. Mm. What about the poor women who were either just going out with other poor women or, I don't know, in a different context, would they go to these gay bars or was that not on? Yeah, if they were looking for a partner, maybe, could they go to one of these bars to look for someone to date or not really? I can't really speak for what was happening in the early history of the like Uh tea poor divide, but by the 1980s, definitely there were specific lesbian bars where tea and poor lesbians would go to like look for each other. Mm -hmm. It was generally considered a bit weird at this time for to have like a poor for poor relationship yeah i was gonna Um, ask you about that yeah it becomes like i said it becomes much more fluid and it's becoming much more fluid by even like the 90s Mm -hmm. so it's kind of becoming more malleable as meow jin grows into her t gender identity Mm -hmm. i guess that makes sense in the context of it also just becoming more kind of socially open and socially talked about yeah there are more spaces to explore this in different ways yeah but historically, it's very much kind of seen as like T is a transmasculine identity and poor is just a heterosexual woman who's been led astray by a deviant man, kind of. <laughs> I see, I see, I see. Um, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more about like people's T identities just because I think it's interesting. Can mm-hmm. I ask a useless question? Yeah. How do they write T? Do they have like a the character capital, for it? No, the capital letter. Just okay. the capital letter T. Cool. I did also have a whole section here where I talked about like Chinese gendered pronouns because they have a very interesting history. And then I was like, I'm going to cut that and save it for a bonus episode. (laughs) That's fair. Because it seemed like it would stand quite distinctly. Subscribe on Patreon. Yeah. So subscribe on Patreon if you want (laughs) to learn some stuff about the history of gendered Chinese pronouns. So in those early like 60s and 70s gay bars, many T's recall having like positive experiences of gender validation and recognition there. One... T, who was in their late 40s when they were interviewed in 1994, said, We were seen as real men in there. We were certainly respected and acknowledged as such. So for many T's, as I've kind of established, it was very much a gender identity. Mm -hmm. Another older T that I read an interview from recalled discussing the possibility of gender-affirming surgery with his mother. And what he says is... Once I read a Japanese magazine article featuring the fact that homosexuality is caused by maternal sex glandular misexcretion during pregnancy. That is, I don't know, you know, we'll just allow that pseudoscience to go. That is, it's an inborn trait rather than anything else. Mm -hmm. I concluded that my misfortune would be called off if I conducted a sex change operation. In a fit of excitement, I showed my mum the article. She, however, got very upset. It's already too much that you're wearing men's clothes and underwear. Now you even want to change your sex? How will I have the face to see our relatives after? After you do it. In the end, I gave up on the idea of sex change because of my poor financial situation. Otherwise, I would fly to America to take up the surgery anytime. I always thought that it would be wonderful to have a penis just for one day. Mm. So I read this out to you just because I want to be clear that it's not necessarily... I think people tend to talk about tea and poor as the kind of Chinese equivalent of the butch femme dichotomy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that that makes people in the modern day think of it as two lesbian identities. Mm -hmm. But that's not always the way that it's been perceived or presented. I mean, I think, to be frank, people also narrow their understanding of especially what butch means. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I think that understanding butch and femme as just two, well, butch in particular, just a lesbian identity is also not 
correct. Yeah, I think I don't disagree with you there, yeah. but I think that that's often how people sure that's perceive the, like, it. path people. That's the path take. people go on. They're like, I know about butch and femme. It's the man lesbian and the woman lesbian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even by saying the man lesbian, you've kind of introduced the fact that this is really about gender. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the man lesbian sounds like a old timey pulp novel, and I'm sure it exists. Yeah. Quite frankly, <laughs> I want to read the man lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> go, go and type. I want you to both meet and be the man lesbian. <laughs> By the late 80s and early 90s, as I said, this had started to shift to some degree. For many T's, the identity was considered to be more of a gender non-conforming woman's identity as opposed to a transmasculine one, where earlier the predominant view had been a transmasculine identity. So is there like a shift on focus here between it being a gender-focused identity and more of a sexuality-focused identity? Yes, very much so. One T who was interviewed, a younger T in the 90s, described the difficulty of having a cross generational friendship because of this shift. In her early 30s in 1993, she recounted having a first meeting with a much older T who would go on to become a close friend. They'd been having a drink together organized by a mutual friend and they headed to the bathroom together and the younger one headed for the women's bathroom and says that the older one said to her, I'm so disappointed with you. Are you a T or not? Remember, we're men. We're real men. And she said, I was shocked. I'm a T all right, but I'm not a man. That is a really neat example yeah <laughs> it was so absolutely clear that's why yeah. it is in here <laughs> sometimes you're like how will i understand this situation that's going on then someone's like here's a quote that tells you exactly what you need yeah. to know right, yeah it's like me and my friend role played this for you <laughs> <laughs> and so she finished by saying sometimes it's very difficult making friends with older t's they have a completely different conception of this whole tea poor thing than i do uh-huh. For closure, I understand that they talked it out and became close friends. Okay, well, that's cool. nice. Like before or after they went to the bathroom? <laughs> Presumably after. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, Antonia Chow, who's the Taiwanese sociologist who did all of these interviews, still noted a lot of transmasculine gender expression while doing field work in tea bars in the first half of the 1990s. She's talking about both like T's talking about themselves as men. She's talking to somebody who had started a tea house and... A tea house or a tea house? A tea house is in a house where you drink tea. Okay. (laughs) Um, As opposed to a tea bar, which is a bar where teas go. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was like. Is it a tea house or a tea house or a tea tea house? (laughs) She's talking to a tea who had opened a tea house and he said to her, you know, we men are always into business. It's part of our nature. Okay. And she also noted it was relatively common for teas she encountered to have top surgery or bind or take gender affirming hormones. She usually ascribed this to their T identity as opposed to their masculinity. And sometimes this is obviously the case. Like she gives me this one quote from one T she spoke to who said, you have to understand that breast binding requires skills. You have to make your breasts small, but not completely flat. Otherwise they would look like a man's chest. Hmm, that's really interesting. I was <laughs> going to ask like, what do you mean their T identity as opposed to their masculinity? Why are we delineating those two things? But I see that there kind of is a difference in what yeah. they're presenting here. They're not trying to present as a man in this specific context, at least. Yeah. They're trying to present as a T. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that delineation is very clear in that little anecdote I told you before about the two T's who went to the bathroom and one mm. was like, what are you doing? We're real men. Get in the men's room. Mm. And the other one was like, no, I'm not. I'm a T, not a man. Yeah, yeah. There's like two different transmasculine gender identities under the same umbrella here. Mm-hmm. This took me on a little mental tangent where I was like, so like if in this example, the other one was not saying I'm a woman, I'm a T. I was like, what if you had a T bathroom? And then I was picturing them all lined up and the bathrooms would be FTM. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, hmm, a thing has occurred. A <laughs> thing, thing has occurred. <laughs> anyway, that was um, you know, not really useful or anything. <laughs> so I tried after this to kind of look and see if I could find any similar analysis of the poor identity. I was literally one about to be like, so when are we getting to that? <laughs> um, to see if, you know, if people conceptualize that as being separate to womanhood in the same way as being a T is separate to manhood. Mm. Um, but I couldn't really find any in-depth analysis of this. It's definitely the case, like in a Western context, that some femme lesbians consider themselves femme in a way that is fundamentally different to like straight women. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like something I'm definitely aware of. I don't know if either of you ever listened to the Gender Reveal podcast. I know it exists, but I don't think we have ever actually listened um, to it. Not like tons of it. There's yeah. so many podcasts. There are. <laughs> We're not there helping are. that problem. We're not helping that problem. <laughs> um, but often on the podcast, when they interview a 
like someone who identifies themselves as femme, they'll open with like, so I'm just curious. I want to hear what femme means to Mm. you. Mm. And yeah, it's a very kind of, it means a lot of things to people that are like queerer than simply a woman. Mm. Yeah. If you know what I mean. It's not just like performing traditional womanhood. No. No. It's not just woman, but make it French. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, I couldn't find much similar about the poor identity. I presume that I would have to like, go out there and hang out on some like Taiwanese forums or something. Go do some mm-hmm. field research. I, I thought you were going to say I'd have to go there and hang out in some Taiwanese I'd bars. have to do that too yeah. actually. <laughs> I, you can... I did start doing research about this and I was like reading the menus of like lesbian cafes <laughs> in Taipei and I was like what am I doing? We'll send you to Taiwan <laughs> on a research You can trip. make right. a you can put in a funding application if you want. <laughs> to us? <laughs> to us. <laughs> okay okay I'll put in a grant will, application. If you go and do a bunch of interviews with yeah, that's what People I'll do. People in Taiwanese bars. That's yeah. what I'll do. You'll get a special episode of Queer as Fact about yeah. it. That'd be pretty great. That would be pretty good. Like I said earlier, the poor is often considered to be a woman. Yeah. Who is being seduced by a queer masculine identity, if that makes mm. sense. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, this is kind of like the flip side of what you see in a whole variety of contexts with uh, men who sleep with men where like the man who is passive or the bottom or whatever it may be you know referred to in that context is considered queer but the other man is not in a lot of cultures yeah 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 i was going to compare it to uh how a lot of men who sleep with trans women get talked about oh okay yeah mm-hmm. i feel like that's in some ways similar obviously you're going to elaborate on this but you know it's a thing where like that kind of narrative of this is a straight person who has been bamboozled <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah very much so Tio Myajin sometimes she'll challenge this idea in her work and sometimes she'll accept it like the protagonist of her first novel writes in a love letter to her ex you tore me open and exposed the man inside kind of framing it in such a way that rather than the protagonist being a man and her lover being an ordinary heterosexual woman Mm. it's framed in this way it's where it's like her lover was so so enticing that she just had to become a man to make this work (laughs) (laughs) so that would have been quite a subversive take on that dynamic Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah but conversely in another work she wrote as i naturally love women the women that i love do not need the prerequisite of sexual orientation to love me I don't believe that my desire for women is all that different from when a man wants a woman. Mm -hmm. So kind of both those things are still going on for Miao Jin. Uh, She's still, I think, and for her entire life, she's still kind of exploring the, like, nooks of gender identity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I like that phrase. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) She's done the crannies. It is time for the nooks. Yes. The two genders, yeah. nooks and crannies. <laughs> I don't know about this. In the early 90s, the tea-poor dichotomy was growing more fluid, which you can see is reflected in Miao Jin's writing mm-hmm. and her conception of it. So I'm just going to read you a little quote from another sociologist about the ways that it changed in that time. In Taiwan, Tongzhi women who went through their university years during the 90s and who were influenced by feminism either don't engage in gender role playing at all or they make more minute distinctions in gender categories such as little t, more prone to t, more prone to poor, etc. Now one speaks of little t and camp t, that is to say a very gentle and softly spoken kind of t. There are different kinds of poor and they don't necessarily wear long hair. Most brilliant of of all are those who become poor when encountering a tea, and tea when encountering a poor. They can switch between the two roles, depending on who they're with. So something that they haven't mentioned in that kind of exploration of how the roles are expanding is whether the relationship dynamics are expanding. Like, they're still talking about people who become poor when they're with tea or tea when they're with poor, but they haven't talked about, like, tea-tea relationships or poor-poor relationships. Yeah, and that's very much true. And as far as I can tell, we don't really end up in a situation where tea-tea and poor-poor relationships start happening. We more end up in a situation where queer Taiwanese women move away from the tea poor mm-hmm. dichotomy altogether. Mm-hmm. There's more going on with that today where like over time people sort of moved away from that identity as like it was conceived as kind of emphasizing or like reinforcing binary gender roles. Mm-hmm. But in more recent years, people have started to look back at it as a sort of significant part of Taiwanese lesbian culture that's worth remembering and celebrating. 
Mm. Um, so there was a lot of there was a lot of tension in the nineties at this time between people for whom their tea or their poor experience was very important and people who understood those as like perpetrating gender roles, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So having said all this, Miao Jin herself. I never saw her use the word tea for herself, but a lot of other people speaking about her described her as having a tea identity. Mm-hmm. And definitely the characters in her work often talk about how they're struggling to t- come to terms with a masculine part of themselves or things mm-hmm. like that. So while she never uses the word tea in her work, I think that that is a relevant gender identity to bring up in the context of Miao Jin. By 1992, Miao Jin had graduated and begun working first as a journalist and later in a tea house. As far as I know, the tea house was not run by a tea. Okay. A tea tea house. (laughs) While she did this, she was working on her first novel, Notes of a Crocodile. Great name. Strong start. Is this the one about the sex worker? No, that was a short story. She already, she published that in 1991. Okay. Um, This was her first novel. Okay. Um, So... The novel, which she ultimately published in 1994, is a kind of surreal first-person account of a lesbian protagonist's time at Taiwan National University. On brand. On brand, that's exactly right. We never learn the protagonist's name. The closest thing she has to a name is the nickname La Tzu, which is given to her by a queer friend. And what does that mean? Um, La is like to pull, pull or to drag. Oh, yeah. Um, it's not really clear why this name is given to her. A friend just came up with it and they think it's funny, so they keep using <laughs> Okay. I mean, that's fair. People think names don't always make any sense. Yeah. What happens is, what's interesting about it is that while it was a kind of nonsense nickname, within the context of the book, because the book became such a, like, cult hit, mm. Latsu and Lala, which is the same verb, are, like, slang words for lesbian oh, cool. now in um, Chinese-speaking society. Like, in general or in Taiwan? Uh, in general, in oh. general, especially online. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that although she didn't super intend to name her character lesbian... <laughs> <laughs> in retrospect. In retrospect, that's very much how it looks. The framing of the novel is the narrator recounting her university time from sometime in the future, aided by, she tells us, journals that she kept during the period. It's divided into six notebooks. Mm-hmm. And it opens with Latsa starting a romantic relationship with a girl that she knew from high school whose name is Shui Ling. She then breaks up with Shui Ling as she feels like it's impossible for her to bring Shui Ling happiness and that she doesn't deserve happiness with her. Which happens very quickly at the start of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it follows Latsa's sort of ongoing struggle for happiness and self-love and belonging. Mm-hmm. from there. Pretty classic college novel stuff. Yeah, classic queer college novel stuff. Over the course of the novel, Latsu amasses a small group of friends who are Tuntun and Jiro, a same-sex couple who joined the debating club that she's kind of suckered into becoming the president of. <laughs> <laughs> a classic university experience. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get suckered into being on a committee really soon. This is very relatable. She also has two close gay men friends, or that's the wrong word. She also has two close queer men friends, Meng Sheng and Chu Kuang. Like, although all of her friends are queer, she meets them all without knowing that they're queer. And spends, Again, the classic university experience. And spends much of the novel being like, I just feel intimate with these people. I feel comfortable with them. You know, I liked them straight away. <laughs> and now here we get to the crocodile. Oh, oh yeah, there's going to be a crocodile. There is going to be an actual crocodile. Oh, cool. I thought it was metaphorical. It's metaphorical, but it is very much a crocodile in the story. Um, So, interspersed between chapters from Lutz's point of view is this satirical subplot about a crocodile. And basically the plot is this crocodile is one of many crocodiles who have been secretly living in normal Taiwanese society wearing very realistic human suits. Ah, okay. So I get how that could very easily be a metaphor for queerness, but it also has big the lizard cabal Ah, now that's feelings. that's uh, true, and that's not something I thought of, to be yeah, honest. I, I assume, like, I don't know if that's something that they're aware of in Taiwan in the 90s. I can see where you're coming from, and I don't think from reading the novel that that's, that was an angle that was kind yeah. of on her mind when she wrote it, but I can definitely see that connection. Yeah, I, yeah, I assume... 
not what the novel's about, but my enjoyment of the crocodile has been slightly scuppered. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. Tell me um, more. Basically, it's describing this kind of exaggerated media storm following the general public's discovery that there are, in fact, secret crocodiles in society. Okay. And the crocodile itself is dealing with these, like, warring internal desires to meet a public who is obviously very excited to know something about a real crocodile mm-hmm. and to stay hidden and thus stay safe from people who feel that the existence of crocodiles is a threat to society. Yeah. So it's a very obvious queer metaphor about yeah. this like sudden flourishing of queerness in mm-hmm. Taiwanese society and eventually the two stories briefly intersect when Latsa who has been living in a realistic 1990s college student world yeah. helps the crocodile to hide in the basement of the tea house where she's working very good <laughs> what Mia Jin was exploring here is kind of the downside of queerness sudden move into the public eye in the 1990s mm-hmm. I think it is worth noting that all Although the sort of educated urban community was quite into this whole thing, there was a very kind of voyeuristic element to it okay. um, mm-hmm. where people were kind of fascinated or compelled by something that they still saw as a kind of weird deviance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this fascination was very much exploited by the media. So in March of 1992, uh, a journalist from TTV, one of Taiwan's three free-to-air TV stations, secretly entered Haven Bar, a lesbian bar, and filmed patrons inside. That's immoral and wrong. That is immoral and, and wrong. potentially illegal. I don't know whether it was illegal. It doesn't okay. seem to have come up as a legal issue as such. Yeah. The footage was then used as part of a like, TV segment entitled The Rapid Rise of Lesbians. Oh, Kiroki. Obviously, this had massive implications for anyone who was in that footage. Yeah. Yep. And many of them were obviously were not out to their families or not out to their workplaces. Or Do you reckon, and maybe you will have no idea, this journalist had like thought about these repercussions and just thought it was worth it for the story? Or do you reckon they were just so oblivious to kind of the queer experience that they didn't consider that they were outing these people? I honestly, the impression I get is the latter. Mm, okay. After some like pressure from queer people, the National Press Council ruled that the broadcast was inappropriate and Chu Meifeng, who was the journalist, did a kind of apologetic interview with Together magazine, which was one of those queer magazines that I mentioned earlier. And in it, it's like this interview where she sort of tries to, you know, clean her record of homophobia and be like, sorry, guys, that was never my intention. <laughs> um, and it's accompanied by this photo shoot where she wears like masculine clothing and has a lesbian aesthetic. It's a very strange situation. That but- is a weird PR choice. Yeah. She's not a lesbian as far as not we know, that right? I know of. Sorry I ruined your lives, I'm wearing a suit. <laughs> yeah, basically. Although the National Press Council ruled this inappropriate, this wasn't the last time that something like this occurred. Oh. It happened several times throughout the decade. What, specifically like illegally filming yeah. queer people? I mean, not necessarily illegally, we don't know, but you know. Yeah, specifically like secretly filming like queer venues and things like that. Mm. So, in Notes of a Crocodile... Just as queer people in real life must have done. This crocodile is obsessively reading, like, media, reading news stories about crocodiles, searching for hints that its identity has been revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, it works in a bakery. <laughs> and <laughs> it works... I, know, I was like, this is in my, in my script, this is like a normal sentence, but when I said it, the mental image was just very funny. <laughs> I know you said it's in a convincing human suit, but I'm just picturing a crocodile. I mean, like, even when you... Um, when, like, when, when you... All the time I was reading this book, I was trying to imagine the human suit of the crocodile and I was like, I just have to accept that this works. I mean, obviously a crocodile cannot wear a convincing human suit. Um, (laughs) This is not a realistic book. Anyway, so the crocodile works at a bakery and its favourite, like, free bakery snack to take home at the end of the day is cream puffs. But after this rumour goes around that cream puffs are a crocodile's favourite food, it stops taking cream puffs home with it because it's afraid that someone will realise that it's a crocodile or that somebody is spreading these rumours because they already know that it's a crocodile I and they're, like, watching what it does. I feel so genuinely sad for this fictional crocodile. I know, it was genuinely quite, like... And the crocodile's tone, every chapter from the crocodile, is very, like, it's kind of endearingly sort of excited and enthusiastic to meet people and it's like I want the world to know me but also I'm scared and I'm not safe hmm. yeah it was very kind of surprising how at the same time as it was kind of a laughable nonsense element of the story it was very kind of emotionally sincere hmm. I wonder why she chose a crocodile I'm not sure if it had any like 
significance that we're missing. Mm. At another point, the crocodile emerges from hiding to attend an underground secret party for crocodiles, only to find that it's not actually a crocodile-organized underground party at all. The guest of honor is a company trying to sell a more realistic human suit. I hate wow. this. I don't think I can emotionally deal with the life of this crocodile. Um, which I also thought was just an interesting thing to bring up because that issue of like rainbow capitalism yeah. again kind of comes back to having gone from zero to 60 in mm. Taiwanese society in five years. Mm, like how quickly do you go from being like, oh, there are queer people to like, oh, we can sell to queer people. Yeah. 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 So in all of this where queer people are becoming so like much more visible so fast in Taiwanese society and there's this kind of weird fascination going on, is there much like overt homophobia or is it more just kind of like sensationalist voyeurist kind of that kind of more subtle homophobia um most of what i encountered was more of that like subtle homophobia it was more commentary on like people having disappointed their families or sort of let down their family's expectations or things Mm -hmm. like that rather than sort of direct homophobic abuse but I'm definitely not going to say that that did not occur. I would say your let down disappointment in your family is overt homophobia. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a very, and even today, there's definitely a very sort of socially conservative element in Taiwanese society mm-hmm. who would be happier if there were not queer people. So Bonnie Huey, who was the translator of the edition of Notes of a Crocodile that I read, said about it, it's not about how it gets better. It's about living in a permanent wartime. Um, Oof. Which is pretty strong language, and I do kind of agree with it in that it doesn't have the arc you kind of expect of a queer coming-of-age novel from Mm. our cultural context, Mm -hmm. where we expect to see a protagonist kind of move from uncertainty and self-loathing to, like, certainty and self-love, and then come out. Yeah. That arc is absent. At various times, Latsa feels all of those things. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes she's sure of herself. Sometimes she's not. Sometimes she's like, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop being gay. And other times she's like, I couldn't stop. And why would I want to? This is who I am. Mm -hmm. And while the crocodile does have a public coming out at the end of its arc. Oh, does that go well for it? We don't Mm -hmm. find out. That's the end of the crocodile's arc. The crocodile has this public coming out and is like, I'm looking forward to meeting the world. Oh, the crocodile is very sweet. (laughs) I hope it can eat cream puffs again. Yeah, I hope so. But while the crocodile comes out, Latsu doesn't have the public coming out kind of arc. She threw out the novel one by one. She tells her trusted friends. Mm-hmm. And largely her trusted friends are like, yeah, we're also queer. So this is not a big deal. <laughs> I mean, like, as well as obviously, as you said, it's not as neat a narrative arc. It is a much more realistic depiction of being queer in that, like, there's not much opportunity to have a one-time public coming out unless you're a celebrity. Yeah, and I think the only thing that has allowed sort of private individuals to have a public coming out in modern society is the existence of social media. Yeah. That you very much can come out simultaneously to everyone who knows you now. <laughs> you or could- you could until everyone stopped checking their Facebook feeds. <laughs> yeah, now you have to be like, I'll come out on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram... <laughs> be real (laughs) and even then you still have to come out to your work because you have your separate work facebook account yeah yeah so no that's very much right and i found that a very kind of realistic aspect Mm. of the novel where she would sort of think about it and she was like i'm going to start by telling this person she's the person that i trust most we'll see how that goes and then we'll move on from there and so i think that permanent wartime makes the book sound much bleaker than I found it mm. Mm. like it does depict kind of an ongoing struggle without any clear narrative arc. Yeah. But I think that that more seemed like a realism than it did bleakness. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wartime may be a bit of a strong word for the mm. permanent situation that she's in. Um. Oh, we're just too resigned to the wartime of being queer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't actually know whether the translator herself is queer or not. Yeah, that'd be interesting to know. Ari Heinrich, who translated some of Nia Jin's other works that I read, is a queer person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I don't know about Bonnie. Like, I'm not sure whether it felt like a permanent wartime to her because it was unfamiliar to her, or whether that's what it felt like to her because it was familiar to her, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. After completing her undergraduate degree in psychology and working for a couple of years, Chiu Mia Jin moved to Paris and began studying French there with the intention of continuing into postgraduate studies in clinical psychology. While she was there, however, she met the feminist writer and academic Hélène Sixou, 
and shifted her focus to feminism, enrolling in Hélène's class and attending various public lectures that she presented as well. Hélène became a kind of teacher mentor figure to Mia Jin, and in the introduction to a French edition of Mia Jin's final novel, she provided this kind of experimental literary portrait of Miao Jin, which I include because it's one of the few like descriptions by somebody that knew her mm-hmm. that I have available to me. It very much emphasizes Miao Jin's duality. It uses he and she as pronouns as well as he, she. Like he slash yeah. she. It also presents Miao Jin's birth name and the French name she chose while studying in Paris, which is Zoe, as two distinct personas or two distinct aspects of Miao Jin. Okay. But she gives us this vivid physical description of her student, who she says is animated by a spirit in perpetual motion, always ready to take leave, to spring into action, which is to say passion, and to leap from one form to the next. A street urchin, hands in pockets, speech drunk. She joins our political protests out of a love for revelry and revolt. An elf in a cap, she makes me laugh. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of the um, like introduction sections of Les Amis in yeah. Les Mis. <laughs> I was, I was gonna, gonna say that's just Gavroche. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very much so, but I found it very endearing. Mm. What an intense thing for your teacher to write about you. In Ellen's defense, it was after Miao Jin's death. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. While Miao Jin was in Paris, she made a short film called Carnival of Ghosts. Can we watch it? Not like now, obviously, but like, <laughs> is it available? <laughs> it is available. It's in it's in the like New York Gallery of Contemporary Art. Uh, okay. Somewhere like that. So um, like it's in the world, but we can't personally watch it. It's in the world, but I did read the script of it. Okay. What language is it in? It was in Mandarin. I read Ari Heinrich's translation. Ah, okay. mm-hmm. It's from the point of view of probably a young man. It may well be a young T or a gender non-conforming lesbian of some kind. He appears to be masculine in the context of the script. And he's discussing his relationship with a long-term partner who who died from suicide. The film navigates Jin Young, who is the protagonist's grief, but it also shows through flashbacks the way that he and his partner negotiated things in that relationship, like usually fixed gender roles mm-hmm. are negotiable between them. So there's this one scene where Si Ping, who is the partner, and Jin Young are discussing their future plans, and Si Ping is currently working in a factory so that Jin Young can afford to finish school. Mm -hmm. And they're discussing it, and Jin Young says, once I graduate, it's your turn, I'll work, and then you can go to school. That's nice. Um, So they're planning this kind of role swap. So would one of those roles have been seen as more masculine and one as more feminine? I would say in a lot of ways they're both masculine roles. Yeah. Um, In that the man of the family is the one that you work to put through school, but also the person who works to support their family (laughs) is a masculine role. So what do women do if the men work to put the men through school? Dad works to put the boy through school (laughs) and the women do, like, domestic labour, you know? (laughs) I'm kind of joking. <laughs> yeah. Um, though having said that, if you listen to our episode about golden orchid societies, sometimes women work to put the, the men through school. That's true too. Or to support their families. Not really relevant. Just thought I'd bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> to remind you the gender roles are fake. Exactly. While in Paris, Miao Jin also wrote what would be her final novel. I will warn you at this point that her second novel very much con- concerns suicide. So just be aware of that. It's called Last Words from Montmartre. And it's a much bleaker and much more experimental novel than Notes of a Crocodile was. Not the least bleak or least experimental book to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely wrote that. And I was like, the crocodile situation was quite experimental. And pretty bleak in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it felt very playful in a way that Last Mm -hmm. Words doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last Words also feels much more kind of self-conscious and literary in its experimentation. Like, it feels like she's kind of working to incorporate things that she's learnt in France in terms of, like, French literary movements. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I can't say a heap about that because I'm certainly not an expert on French literature. I know about Victor Hugo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is more to French literature than Victor Hugo. The book opens with a dedication to Bunny, now dead, and myself, soon to be. Oof. Okay. As the book starts, Bunny is revealed to have been a pet rabbit, which the protagonist co-owned with her ex, who has now returned to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So the protagonist in France. The pro- protagonist is in France. The protagonist is a postgraduate student in France, mm-hmm. whose name is Zoe. Like Tio Mia Jin's name is Zoe. 
In another circumstance, and I only realized this as I was reading this over this afternoon, in another circumstance, I would get into rabbits as kind of queer symbolism in Chinese culture at this point. But Hmm. because the book itself is so explicitly and like non-subtextually queer, it didn't occur to me until the last minute that the subtext element might even be there. (laughs) (laughs) Because the text was so heavy. Yeah, like the text is, I mean, the text is heavy. But the text is also explicitly queer. It's explicitly, like, sexually queer. Mm -hmm. The book is structured as a collection of letters, mostly written by the protagonist to their beloved, who has returned to Taiwan. Um, Is that their ex? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So have they, like, broken up or have they just gone back to Taiwan? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I can't give you, like, a super definitive answer about that. Okay. Zoe, the protagonist, is very much in love with Stu, who is the ex, and would like it to continue, but couldn't like feels abandoned Mm. by Xu going back to Taiwan. The book is structured as this collection of letters that Zoe writes to Xu, but never intends to actually send. There are a couple of letters in it which are ostensibly written by Xu, but it's very easy to believe as the reader that these are letters that Zoe writes kind of in Xu's perspective, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. In Xu's shoes, one might say. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Um... One might. According to an author's note by Miao Jin, the letters are intended to be read in any order, and the experimental prose of the letters uses both third and first person pronouns to refer to Zoe at various times, and also both masculine and feminine pronouns and language. Zoe calls herself the rabbit's daddy, <laughs> amongst other things. Mm-hmm. It's much more sexually explicit than Notes from a Crocodile was. Notes from a Crocodile makes a couple of brief mentions of Latsa making love to a woman. Last Words has at least one straight up sex scene in it. Mm-hmm. For all that, in a lot of ways, it's a very bleak book and it's written by somebody who is obviously anticipating and preparing for their death. It still has very kind of relatable elements as a queer person to me. And there's this one paragraph that I wanted to read where she's thinking about her love of returning. And she says, she couldn't know that I was biding my time, preparing for her. I want to present her with a Zoe who smokes cigarettes, who has long hair, who rides a bicycle, who is immersed in learning the violin, who has returned to her novel and writes poetry regularly. Just like a cool French Zoe. Just like a cool Zoe, whose French (laughs) is catching up with hers, whose social life is busy, who has a light, easygoing personality, a Zoe who is handsome and beautiful. And I found this very, like, I feel like the kind of queer impulse to reincarnate (laughs) yourself into the cool version of you, like the honest version of you, the real me that no one's met yet. Um... (laughs) Is that a queer impulse? I don't know. Or is that just a human impulse? I think it's a human impulse, but I do think it comes with a kind of queer aspect to it. Yeah. I think it kind of comes with that, like, common queer feeling of not getting to have an adolescence. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so having to do all of that discovery in your, like, early adulthood instead. Yeah. I read an assortment of reviews from when the English translation came out to see how people perceived this book generally. It was hugely varied. Some people were like, this was confusing and intense and changed my life. Um, So is that a positive review? That's a positive (laughs) review, yes. That's a positive (laughs) review. Um, Josh Stenberg, who wrote a review in 2017, wrote, Though it's a flawless translation, it's really not a very good book. It sounds like something that would be quite hard to translate. Like, I feel like the more esoteric the book, the harder to translate. Yeah, yeah. And he goes on to say, it's a meandering and very French interior monologue whose literary merits are a particular taste. So I guess he's acknowledging in that way that for him, he found it difficult, Yeah, but there might be people for whom. Mm. And also, I think in calling it very French, he's kind of acknowledging that it does sit within a literary canon where this is kind of, you know, yeah, the style and the themes and the way of, you know, writing, but it's just not for him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So did you read this one? I didn't read the full book. Okay. I read several chapters from it in random order, as Miao-Jin instructed me. Well, that's all right, because she says you could. I cannot deal with stuff like that. Yeah, I found I found Notes of a Crocodile to be, while kind of experimental and literary, quite engaging. Mm. Um, I found this one to be much more experimental in a way that I found hard to connect with. Mm. Mm. I'm not a literary person. 
I'm not always not a literary person, but I feel like they can be very hit or miss, mm. which is, I guess, true of literally every book. Yeah. You yeah. know, I definitely say that I'm a fantasy person, but like one in five fantasy books I pick up, I'm like, yeah, this is a good one. That's a pretty high number. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it probably is. I mean, and I think that's a thing about literary fiction is that it's not a uniquely difficult genre. It's that it's sort of held up as like, this will change your life. You need to read this, even though it's a struggle. Mm. I guess more people are trying literary fiction for whom literary fiction is not their genre. Yeah. Whereas people are much more comfortable just being like, I don't do crime novels or, you know, I don't do sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. And even within those genres, people are much more willing to pick up a sci-fi novel and be like, this one didn't work for me. In June of 1995, only a week after the date of the final letter in Last Words from Montmartre, Tio Miao Jin died from suicide. So is this book published posthumously? Yes. Mm. Yes, so she sent all of her papers to a close friend who ensured that Last Words was published posthumously. I encountered a certain amount of discussion in my research about the means and manner of her death and, like, why she made this decision and why it was, you know, trying to kind of situate it in an artistic tradition. And I would like to throw all of that out the window right now. I think it's very clear from the texts of both Notes of a Crocodile and Last Words from Montmartre that Miao Jin was struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of all I really want to say about that. So in 1995, Miao Jin was posthumously awarded the China Times Literary Prize for Notes of a Crocodile. The book also won acclaim in the Chinese-speaking lesbian community. As I said before, Latsu became synonymous with lesbian within the community. So just, I don't know if you know the answer to this question. Do your average queers in Taiwan today know about Chua Mia Jin? Like, is she famous? Yeah, yeah very much so. Very I mean, if so. the terms that she used in her book, yeah. just mean lesbian, now, <laughs> probably yeah, pretty yeah. famous. Um, yeah. She's famous in the queer community, and she's also famous in a literary sense. Like, you'll study her books in a literature class. Oh, yeah. Thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So with that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you for listening. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more of the same on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean, or whatever podcatcher you use. If you liked us, you can leave us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, or you can leave us a rating on Spotify. Those really help us to find a wider audience. If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, or you can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can also send us physical mail. Our PO box address is on our website. If you wanted to support us financially, you can buy merch with the Queer as Fact logo on it on Redbubble, or you can sign up to our Patreon. If you are a $10 patron, we will give you a shout out on the episode. Today, I'd like to thank Prince Paolumu, Jerry H, Sandra Manila, Clayton Weymouth, Sigrid Tuttle, Rachel Andrews, and Brennan Scott. Thanks, guys. We're very happy to have you here. Thank you for your support. For all of that information, if you don't remember it or want to see it written down, as well as our source posts, you can head to our website, which is queerisfact.com. This is the final episode of the season. After this episode, we'll be taking a short break, so you will see us back on the 1st of December. I hope you don't miss us too much. See you then. <laughs>